Welcome everybody to the Credit Roundtable, part of Brandywine Global's series of conversations around the curve. I'm Katie Klingensmith at Brandywine Global, and I'm delighted to be joined by three of my colleagues from the Fixed Income Group today. I'm first joined by Don McLean, who is part of our high yield credit team. I'm, I'm also joined by Tracy Chen, who works on a variety of topics and has a deep ex expertise in securitized credit. And I'm joined by Kevin O'Deal, who works on credit and has an excellent perspective on the bottom up and the sectors. There is so much we can talk about today. We're just going to scratch the surface on a number of different topics. Um, but just to get us started, I'm going to give it to you, John. There's been so much focus, gosh, for years now on what the Fed is doing and saying. We just heard from the Fed. How much of everything that's going on in credit markets right now is about this Fed pivot and actually waiting for it to materialize? Thanks, Katie. Um, I, I think everything is predicated on the Fed right now. Unfortunately, I feel like we're in a position where uh, instead of being investors, we're just analyzing and hanging on Jay Powell's every word. And you saw quickly what happened in the fourth quarter as the market perceived the Fed to uh, remove its hawkish stance. We saw a very strong move up in all risk assets. And as we're recording this today on February 1st, what we saw yesterday was a little bit of a change in tone uh, from the Fed, which caught investors off sides to a degree. And I think it jives with our opinion, which is that we are going to see a market that is higher for longer. That hasn't changed. There is no reason we believe that uh, you will see five, six rate cuts and a slowdown of balance sheet runoff if we stick the landing. If only there were other fundamentals that were really driving things beyond the Fed, but alas, some of them still do matter. Uh, Tracy, just react to that. What, what do you see as really driving credit markets right now, the Fed or more than the Fed? Thank you, Katie. I concur with what John said. I think um, the Fed meeting kept the, the rates of setting yesterday um, as, as expected, uh, but they have a very, uh, very much uh, more hawkish tone. Um, so ever since last November, credit markets has been uh, responded to to the Fed's dovishness, and um, and then the soft landing became became consensus. So so you see the financial condition eased significantly, and the credit market rallied very very hard since last year end. So this Goldilocks soft landing scenario um, is is a consensus. But I I would add some some kind of caution. Um, I think if you look at the 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 recent earnings season, right? Uh, it, it is a little bit weaker than market expectation. And um, uh, the top-down macro data is still very, very resilient. There's some warning signs emerging uh, on the inflation front and because of the geopolitical confrontation in the Red Sea. Um, and, and also investor positioning has been a little bit stretched. So I think for credit investors, uh, there, there should be uh, some kind of caution added to their, to their approach to the credit market. Right. We've all become really optimistic all of a sudden. Well, Kevin, I want to bring you in. I know that you have really followed uh, from a bottom-up perspective uh, earnings, and we're still in the middle of getting to the end of earnings season. What have you learned, and do you see reasons for Tracy to continue to fret a little more than what we're seeing in the, the top-line market reactions? Yeah, I think I can add commentary basically to both John and Tracy. In, in terms of earnings, and again, we're maybe halfway through earnings season, maybe slightly more after this week. Um, I would say it's mixed. You know, I, Tracy made the point that there was certainly some some weakness there, maybe surrounding some of the industrials 
And a lot of that stemming from China, where you're seeing more weakness come out of there. Domestic companies doing a little better. The one thing that was positive up until maybe two days ago was the banking sector. Prior to that, a lot of the regional banks and certainly the, the, big, the money centers, I would say, came out with fairly positive earnings where you're seeing maybe all peaks of net interest margin, um, but really the deposit stabilizing, which is, you know, that's really important to kind of the, the credit growth of the uh, of the economy. So, and then lastly, maybe your MAG-7, um, they had good numbers, but I think this speaks to John's point. The expectation for those numbers were so high, maybe the equities didn't respond, but overall the numbers were positive. John, just react to that. Have you learned anything this season? Yeah, I, I think where we're at right now is fundamentals matter and we're seeing them reasonable and particularly from a credit perspective more than anything. I think what we have observed is that the cost of capital is materially higher for companies and therefore they are borrowing less, which is a meaningful tailwind for corporate credit, both in investment grade and in high yield. But the other piece of it, as both Tracy and Kevin have alluded to, is that valuations matter a lot too. And with IG corporate spreads at 100, high yield at 360, you're stretched. And really, you need the soft landing and you need uh, companies to continue with the behavior that is beneficial for uh, bondholders to, to really generate strong returns from here. So I do think that uh, while we are in a positive economic backdrop, uh, we, we need to be cautious because of valuations. And you're paid to be patient right now with an inverted curve and uh, strong yields on the front end. Kevin, what does all this mean from a consumer perspective? I know that you are both following from an earnings um, perspective and also looking at a lot of the macro data. So Katie, many of the, the larger retailers come in the second half of the earnings and, and they provide a lot of color on, on their customers. So I really look forward to their commentary there. What we've had thus far in terms of the consumer health has really stemmed from the banks that we had early. Um, we've read a lot about maybe credit card delinquencies uh, coming higher, especially at the lower end consumer. But a lot of these banks are telling you that underwriting standards are a lot better than they were previously. And a lot of these delinquencies may be peaking mid-year and that they're seeing a lot more confidence within the consumer name. And that's been really reflected in some of the GDP growth that we've seen that was really consumer driven. All of us, of course, is going to play out in the health of the households. And Tracy, I want to dive into some commercial opportunities there. But just how would you characterize the health of U.S. households and the actual housing market right now? Thank you, Katie. I think U.S. housing market is a mixed story. On the, on, on the one hand, it's very imbalanced. Uh, it's partially frozen uh, with very depressed housing activity. For example, the mortgage application and existing home sales has been very much in doldrum for a couple of years. And uh, due, due to the fact that uh, it's both because of locking effect and also lockout effect. So for the locking effect is because existing homeowners, they lock in very low uh, mortgage rate in the low mid 3%, whereas the ongoing current mortgage rate is close to 7%. And then uh, for the lockout is because uh, the home affordability has become so bad that most of the first ho first time home buyers, uh, they, they are locked out. So. Uh, with that, uh, with that being the case, the housing price has been really, really resilient. Um, and household balance sheet, just as uh, Kevin said, it's very healthy. The household net worth is about seven times of their disposable income. So that 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 all bode well for housing market going forward. 
And I, I can see that mortgage rate already lowered from close to 8% uh, last year to about uh, like close to 7% now. So that 100 basis point rally in mortgage rate is extremely ha- uh, helpful uh, for existing home sales to gradually rebound. Um, and also new home sales as a share of total home sales has been climbing up uh, because the lenders, the builders, they can uh, offer mortgage rate buy down to uh, incentivize people to buy uh, to buy homes. So there is really some some uh, pent up housing demand that can support uh, housing market going forward. And the um, majority of mortgage rate in US is fixed rate. So this is tremendously advantageous uh, compared to other developed uh, housing market. And the millennials they are starting to uh, to to form uh, households. So that's very bullish. So that generally feels like a pretty sanguine outlook still, even with mortgage rates still relatively high and a, a pretty illiquid real estate markets. But you guys have found quite a few opportunities in the um, residential MBS and the credit risk transfers, correct? Uh, let me start with agency uh, RMBS first. So uh, to be clear, agency RMBS is a rate product. It's not credit product. The reason is because it's guaranteed by government. Um, so they have Ginnie Mae, Fannie Mae, and Freddie Mac. There's no credit risk. Um, and then um, since um, ever since last year, we, we have been seeing the valuation has gotten to a very cheap level. The reason is because the biggest buyer, Fed and banks, they are pretty much out of the market uh, due, due to the QT and due to the, the bank's regulation. Um, and then um, there is a very heightened interest rate volatility uh, because we, we know um, cherry rate, uh, we, we know the very aggressive uh, Fed's hike. So the very high, heightened rate volatility is extremely uh, unfavorable to the mortgage market because for mortgages, you, you are basically um, selling the, 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 the ball, right? You are, you are selling the, the default option and also prepayment option. Um, so the spread of mortgages to cherry uh, has gotten to to standard deviation cheap last year. And now it kind of uh, compressed to close to fair value, but it's still very, very attractive, um, both compared to its historical level and also compared to uh, IG corporate. Uh, and fundamental is great. The reason I say that is because uh, more than uh, the 99% of borrowers, they are out of money to refi. Uh, th- that's the locking effect I just uh, uh, alluded to. So the negative convexity that is notorious for mortgage-backed securities now becomes the least negative in its history. Um, so it, it's almost close to zero. Uh, with the Fed embarking on the interest rate cut cycle, I think the interest rate volatility should decrease and that should boost uh, NBS uh, valuation. So that is why. Um, the other thing we, we want to see is banks, they should be gradually coming back to the NBS market. And then I can talk about the CRT market. Um, so CRT uh, is shortened term for credit risk transfer. There are several uh, favorable fundamental and technical factors that that that, that, are, um, that should work well for, for the CRT market. The first is its floating rate instrument. Um, it has a very handsome coupon carry and it's a great hedge for, for, for rate sell off. At the same time, the underlying mortgage loans are fixed rate. So, um, and then, um, it, it, they also have tender upside. Um, so for the past two years, Jeannie, uh, Jeannie May, oh, sorry, uh, Fannie and Freddie, they are starting to uh, to tender the uh, the bonds back uh, because they don't think it's uh, economical to 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 uh, to have them outstanding. Uh, and then um, the credit rating upside is another f- uh, favorable factor. We have been seeing continuous uh, credit rating upgrade, 
And then um, uh, last but not the least, they have a negative net supply. So this year we're going to see about 10 billion supply, but they have been paid on and delivering very, very fast. So um, every time there's a new issue, they are multiple times oversubscribed. So we really like this uh, sector and it, it's performing great. Delinquency rate is de minimis. I think that you have a contrasting view for commercial mortgage-backed securities. Mm -hmm. Help us understand what the concerns are there. Sure. Um, commercial real estate market has been the, the epicenter um, of this um, interest rate, very, very interest sensitive, uh, very interest rate sensitive sector, um, which has been performing uh, very badly for the past several years. Also due to COVID, people's lifestyle change, uh, changes when, when they start to work from home and then you have the excess supply of offices. So there are, it, it's like the, 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 the perfect storm, right? Um, but in terms of the fundamentals in the office space, um, I, I would say CMBS is not all about offices. There are very diversified property types um, in, in the CMBS market, like multifamily, retail, hotel, uh, industrial, uh, self-storage, all, all those kind of cool, cool, uh, cool properties. And each properties uh, sector has its own, it has its own idiosyncratic um, characteristics. So we, we, we do think the reckoning of excess supply of in the office sector will take multiple years. And um, and and you when you invest in the CMBS, you will have um, headline risk right on a daily basis. And also the cap rate is not cheap. Um, when you look at the cap rate, the spread between cap rate and treasury has been narrowing. It, it should be widening. So so I think there is definitely price adjustment. And some of the private equities, private credit, they haven't uh, marked mark their properties to to market. So uh, that, that, uh, I don't blame them because there's not many transactions. There is not enough uh, price transparency in the market. So I think there are a lot of negative market sentiment on, on the office sector and price assumptions um, uh, has been really draconian, has been turning very, very pessimistic in the CMBS market. If the outcome for, for those loans turn out, turn out to be less bad, I think the market should rally hard. And also, this is the most levered, the most interest rate sensitive sector, probably in the entire credit market. So, um, and also the underlying fundamental is a slow burn. It takes years to work out. So I don't see a, a sudden uh, a sudden freeze or a sudden squeeze in the market that can generate uh, systemic risk. So I think there are plenty of opportunities uh, in the CMBS market, even though I don't think the fundamental bottom yet. Within commercial mortgage-backed securities and across different sectors within the securitized space, and John mentioned before that there were tight spreads and high yield. Kevin, you often have a multi-sector hat on. How do you even think about comparing all of these different dynamics right now? So when I think about the different opportunity sets across fixed income, sometimes it becomes a fight for capital where there's a lot of great investments at the same time. So it's it's trying to incorporate Tracy's ideas with you know, John and his team's high yield ideas. And there's not a lack of opportunity. I think what we've been rotating out of, especially given kind of the strength that we've seen at the end of last year, was maybe out of IEG, where you're seeing very tight spread and then limited upside from there um, into some of these opportunities that Tracy are speaking of. So it's really about the rotation and the relative value across sectors. Yeah, that, that's that's fair, especially in this period of time where there actually are some interesting yields to be found um, being really dynamic. 
So, John, I know it's not all all peachy, um, and there are also areas of stress. Uh, are are there places where you're kind of worried right now in credit markets? So, I think we're in stage one of a three-stage cycle in private credit, which is covenant relief. We're seeing a lot of covenant relief going on right now. Stage two is loan modification. That's probably 12 months from now. And then stage three is the ultimate default, um, distressed exchanges. So I have some concerns there. Certainly I'm more concerned in the floating rate market generically relative to fixed rate market. The analogy I would say is floating rate borrowers uh, got a 5-1 arm, uh, you know, pre-GFC. And fixed rate borrowers uh, in investment grade and high yield borrowed long and strong in 20 and 21. So they got a 3% mortgage uh, in 2020. Uh, and the home price went up 30% from there. So uh, I, we really have a bifurcated market between haves and have nots. So if you're an investment grade company uh, borrowing fixed rate, there's plenty of capital to be had at reasonably attractive levels based on spread. Floating rate, different, different uh, dynamic. Triple C, different dynamic. Um, There's certainly sectors that give me pause, uh, and it's been the ones that we've highlighted for a long time, TMT and healthcare. Challenges around uh, the predictability of cash flow, size of cash flow. I think what we've seen is private equity, um, the roll-up model in healthcare can have real problems. Uh, We've got reimbursement issues. We've got issues around uh, staffing. Those haven't gone away. So there are areas certainly to be worried about uh, in the marketplace. And we've shied away from from most of this. To to Kevin's point earlier about looking across asset classes, looking for opportunity, when valuations get stretched, we take the Hippocratic Oath and say, do no harm in the portfolio. So it's uh, it's kind of a a more boring time uh, in our market where you're paid to be patient. So we're, we're, we're supposed to shorten duration a little bit, improve credit quality where we can, and find the unique bond structures that will hold up in up and down types of markets. I just want to add to, to John's kind of comments there, because he talked about maybe some of the, the largest stress or where private equity, especially when it's considered health care, you know, some of these guys were the strongest performers at the end of the year because of this premise that all of a sudden the Fed is going to cut aggressively and they bide their time enough that the Fed is going to save them. Whether that comes to fruition, remains to be seen. But that was, I, I think, the biggest driver because those were the outperformers. Everyone did well, but those guys really did well with the where we bought our time. Now we may make it into the clear. Well, and I was going to ask something very similar, but perhaps a little bit more about quantitative easing in general. To what extent was private credit and potentially some other less transparent markets really um, did they grow tremendously because of the ample liquidity over the last couple of years? And those become the sources of stress. I know there's the interest rate conversation, Kevin, and then maybe also just the abundance of liquidity that's now going away. Yeah, I think that that played a huge part of it. Um, when you think about generating investments, you're, the, the, first, the first thing that comes to mind is like, well, can I generate sufficient prof- profitability to make this return? And when you're comparing that to a zero rate environment, those opportunities are vast and tons of capital are coming into this industry having to put to work. We haven't seen how that that or you know that sector has really functioned when times got hard. And to John's point, we're still somewhat in these early stages. And so 
a lot of transparency is is still not out there. So it's almost like a wait and see, but we're certainly mindful of it. And, um, you know, you have to be more aware. Kevin, I'm curious in this context, I know that you've been following recent issuance trends, especially with some concerns about some liquidity walls that are coming up in the credit space. What are you seeing? So I think this speaks to John's point in terms of uh, the strong issuance, especially in the IG. We just had January break a record of all-time issuance for the IG market compared to other Januaries um, with, I think, close to almost $200 billion. Um, and to me, what's more um, highlighting that was not around maybe the maturity walls, but really the demand for capital. If you look at kind of one measure of demand, which is basically new issue um, concession, the average concession with that huge supply was just about three and a half percent. Just to put that into context, last year's average concession over was about eight to nine basis points. So not only is there huge issuance, but there's strong demand from the investment community. Now that the Fed is done, we've seen peak rates, or that's at least the context that, that the market is trading on right now. Absolutely. And I mean, John, how's issuance looking from your perspective? Yeah, high yields back open again, too. And um, we're seeing really strong issuance. We're seeing strong demand. I think there's a number of technicals in the marketplace with uh, an asset class that has shrunk quite meaningfully um, over the past few years due to a lack of issuance and a lot of rising stars. And we continue to see rising stars, particularly in the energy sector. So I think there's a lot of demand for energy paper, given the quality of balance sheets that uh, uh, we're seeing there. Um, you know, we would anticipate that demand is going to continue to be there. We're going to see higher issuance, obviously, than 2023, nowhere near what we saw in 20 and 21. But again, if you're of reasonable quality and reasonable size, um, you're not triple C rated, uh, the market is really open. Strong financial conditions uh, you know, are, are, are available to, to borrowers. And um, you know, I would anticipate that one of the key trends that we're going to see is private credit deals get refinanced out uh, into the broadly syndicated market, whether that's bonds or loans. I think we're also going to see more floating rate paper get put into the fixed rate market. So meaning uh, high yield bonds are going to take share from, from leverage loans. And so what that does is create more seniority, more secured paper in the high yield asset class. So the credit quality continues to uh, be quite strong. Tracy, I want to bring you into this from a, a securitized perspective. What are the, the liquidity and issuance dynamics? And you know, do you have any broad comments around the shape of the curve and the convexity opportunities in the securitized space? Katie, that's a good question. Um, so for the securitized world, I think the insurance um, is a little better than last year uh, for, for the month of January. But overall, I, I see the net supply of different sectors, they are very de minimis. So for example, I, I see uh, when I add up non-agency RMBS, CM, non-agency CMBS, uh, ABS, and uh, CLO for the past year, um, it's less than 100 billion. That's the total net supply. So, so you can see um, the, the insurance really dwindled quite a lot. Um, and even in the agency, uh, RMBS, because of the higher mortgage rate and uh, the, the lower uh, uh, transaction or turnover, um, even the, the net supply for the agency, RMBS, it's a little over uh, like 300 billion. That's all. So I, so I would say that's a great uh, uh, market technical for, for the securitized space. 
Um, in terms of the credit curve, um, I think ever since the Fed pivot last year, credit curve uh, flattened quite a lot. Um, and, and hence you see the, the more lower down the capital structure, the better performance. And even in the CRT space, but overall, I still favor uh, higher yielding uh, floating rate um, uh, bond. Uh, the reason is because we are still in a higher for longer uh, market environment. I think a um, higher, yield, higher yielding floaters should do well, or, or even short duration bond like all the subprime ABS. Um, subprime ABS also experience the similar headline uh, risk like the CMBS because people write, uh, they love to write about subprime borrowers. Uh, squeeze and delinquency uh, blow up, uh, things like that. But if you uh, take a closer look, um, there are a lot of fa favorable things wor uh, working uh, for the subprime uh, ABS. Uh, first, it, the structure of the deal is is very favorable. It, it's it's a very short duration. Like ABS is viewed as a safe haven in the entire structured credit market. Uh, auto ABS uh, is the lion's share of the insurance market. You, usually, it, it, it makes about, about uh, over half of the securitized market in terms of insurance. And um, so it's, uh, it, it, it's um, and if you look at the top tier uh, issuers, they have been through all kinds of uh, recessions in the history. The chief valuations for the subprime auto a, a, ABS, um, if you look at compared to its own history, it's still much wider than pre-COVID time period. There's not a lot of asset class that still trade wider in terms of spread compared to pre-COVID uh, time period. And if you compare those to corporate financial bonds uh, of equivalent rating, it's a lot cheaper as well. Um, and then uh, the deal deliver very, very fast. Um, and this, the credit enhancement for lower tranches, they, they start to build up and they charge a high borrowing rate on those subprime borrowers. Um, and then uh, hence you have a very thick access spread. That's another form of credit support. Um, at the same time, um, as, as Kevin mentioned, the consumer balance sheet is very healthy. It, it's broad based. It's not just for the higher cohort um, of, of, of the, the, the richer cohort of, of the consumer space, but also the lower cohort as well. They also benefit from uh, from the asset um, asset inflation. Um, and at the same time, the used car price, even though it it, it slowed down in terms of uh, price appreciation, but it's still much higher than pre-COVID. So that also bode well for recovery rate, uh, even when a subprime loan default. So overall, um, I think um, my, my least favorite sector for now probably is the CIO. The reason I see that uh, is if you compare CIO versus CRT, you can get equivalent yield in the CRT space. But the fundamental of housing is probably better than the fundamental of leverage loan uh, uh, due to better underwriting standard. And, and also, if you look at CRT uh, on an ongoing basis, you see a rating upgrade. But in the leverage loan space, the downgrade to uh, upgrade ratio is continuing to go higher. And uh, the, the debt exchange rate are, are also going up. And the recovery rate, you just don't want to mention that uh, because of the curve light uh, nature. Uh, the recovery rate is going lower and lower. So, and so CLO is floating rate instrument. I should like it, but at the same time, it's backed by floating rate loans as well. So that, that I don't like it because the higher interest rate will continue to work through the system and leverage loans should uh, have a harder time than the fixed rate mortgage loans. So that's why we are still cautious on CLO space. Uh, but with that being said, I still see some attractive opportunity in the middle market CLO because it's a lot cheaper.
So I think like all of these opportunities, they're very much as a top down and a bottom up uh, and a lot of heterogeneity. Just before we transition very quickly, Kevin, I, I know all of you are looking at global opportunities. Is there anything really different about how you're assessing those opportunities outside of the U.S.? Uh, yes. I mean, look, we come Brandywine Global, it, it's in the name, right? So we have a global perspective when, when we're looking for investment opportunities. What I think is different, especially when we're looking at credits within different domiciles, is really incorporating the the risk of the country itself, which we look at it from a sovereign standpoint. We still do the bottom-up fundamental work, but then we add an additional layer of domicile risk, which sometimes is substantial, sometimes it's not. So I don't there's not really some region that we feel maybe EM local Latam is still an opportunity set. But really, it's about our approach of almost top down combining with the bottom up on a global nature. Right. So there's always going to be a nuanced discussion around yeah. the corporate and sovereign opportunities. Uh, I want to bring this to a wrap. Uh, but before I ask you all to summarize what you're seeing in the year ahead, I want to put John on the spot a little bit. And you know, uh, for better or for worse, we're already spending a lot of time in the U.S. trying to understand the, the economic and the market implications of this year's end of the year's election. What is priced in already and what might get priced in around um, the U.S. election this year? Thanks, Katie. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tough, right? Um, because we do have a long time before the election. But what I would say is there's a couple things to keep in mind from an investing standpoint. One, I don't think really anything's priced in at this point in time. The Fed's going to be politicized for how they act. I think that's probably wrong. Uh, but the timing and size of cuts is definitely going to impact who gets elected. Uh, I think that investors should be very cognizant about buying risk into election day, irrespective of the outcome. Markets hate uncertainty. And once you remove that uncertainty, uh, what we've seen over the last three elections has been a decline in equity vol, irrespective of equities going up or down, decline in equity vol. So again, it's buying risk into the election cycle and when to do that, right? That That's the tricky point too. What we've observed uh, going back and looking historically is it's about 20 days before uh, the election where you want to start thinking about buying risk. Uh, given how quick information moves and how volatile things can get, it might be a shorter uh, lag time here, but we would really say that uh, none of this is priced in at the moment. So I'm going to stick with you because you just said that we have to watch elections, but they're not in there yet. What what do you think are the other themes that are really going to dominate um, the opportunity space in high yield this year? Well, uh, as, as we kind of talked about before, valuations are stretched. And so it does not take a lot of bad news uh, combined with very tight valuations to get things moving wider. Um, so I think we're, we're looking for some bouts of volatility in the marketplace. But you know, I, I'd love to say that I think that this is going to be a gangbuster year in terms of returns, or uh, there's going to be some uh, black swan type of event uh, that, that will lead to a market crash. I don't think either uh, is really going to happen this year. I think what we're going to have is a lot of angst um, around a number of situations. There's a lot of gray rhinos, uh, not black swans out there uh, that, that we've touched upon in this um, podcast here. But... I think we're going to have unspectacular 
uh, returns, but relative to the rest of fixed income, uh, the carry is still um, interesting here. So I think really, again, it, it goes back to what I've highlighted uh, before, pay to be patient, wait, stick and move, uh, wait for opportunities, and as they present themselves, deploy capital aggressively into them. So total return, patience, <laughs> expectations, um, definitely you year to be active. Tracy, let me ask you the same question. Um, with your lens looking at securitized credit, where where do you think um, we'll see the most interesting opportunities in the big themes this year? I think we still like agency MBS because it has the least negative complexity in its history. And we like CRT bonds because um, it, it, it is has also the, the, the great uh, complexity story because most of the bond had very high coupon because of the, flo the floating benchmark is softer. And plus like 400, 500, you get very fat coupon, almost double digit coupon. But at the same time, the underlying, they prepay very slowly because of the locking effect, right? So the IO part of the, the valuation is still very, very attractive. So it has, uh, I would say, the least negative complexity as well. And subprime auto and CMBS triple uh, B, they have uh, positive complexity because they are all trading at a discount. Um, so, so those are the sectors I, I favor. Let me end with you, Kevin, and um, hear your expectations for the big themes from a multi-sector perspective. So I think it's important to kind of take a step back and, and think about if we would have had this th discussion a year ago, a lot of investors may have been on this call saying, uh, I forecast a recession this year, you know, that is a high probability. You know, let's move forward to right now. The market is pricing in a high probability of a self of a soft landing. And rightfully so, right? The numbers have justified some of that positioning. But what makes me feel uncomfortable as an investor is that that upside is very much limited. It's priced into spreads. It's priced into equities. I'm not an equity guy, but you can see that on the valuations. And so where do I see there's best value? It's, it's maybe taking the other side of that trade, not calling for a hard landing, but maybe taking advantage of opportunities where it's not priced in. Uh, as and so that's what I'm really looking for to be. To, it's been said many times. Be patient. Opportunities will come because so many investors are kind of all on the same page at the moment. I, I really feel like there's a lot of themes that have come through from your three different perspectives, especially around being highly selective. So while this year may not have the same direction and has a lot more different kinds of risks out there. Uh, being patient, being nimble, being bottom up, looking at valuations are all going to be what's essential to finding those opportunities um, in 2024. Thank you so much, um, Kevin O'Neill, Tracy Chen, John McLean for joining Brandywine Around the Curve um, Credit Roundtable discussion. Thank you.